during our time here together, all of us here, uh, the teachers and the staff have really sensed how much sincerity there's been in your practice and how much care you've taken in navigating all the ups and downs of your practice, uh, knowing that it isn't easy. You know, it's not a joy ride when you're here, <laughs> to say the, the least. And um, there are moments, of course, of peace and, and a sense of deep calm and fleeting moments, maybe even more than fleeting, of a deep sense of safety within ourselves, within our, our ability to practice. But definitely there's a lot of ups and downs and difficulties. And this is where we learn how to navigate our lives, what's coming out from us inwardly. We learn how to navigate that so that we can bring it, that wisdom and compassion, that tenderness we learn for ourselves into the world. So perhaps we can make space for that in the world out there and in our loved ones who aren't navigating so well or people around us who make mistakes and hurt and harm. So there's a lot of letting go that's happened here and a lot of deep growth that's happened here. So thank you for your courageous efforts. I mean, they're really, really felt in the sincerity of your questions and also your ability to see yourselves very honestly without a layer of delusion around it. I mean, it's really inspiring to hear you speak, describe your practice, and to sort of... um, have so much humility about what's going on within you. So now we're all going back to the lives we participate in and the connections we have in the world. And the question is, how can we translate that inner wisdom and compassion into our outer lives? I mean, most of the uh, questions that were on those pieces of paper, which we couldn't possibly answer everything I understand um, from my colleagues here. Uh, Most of the questions were about, how am I going to take this into my daily life? What about this area, that area? So a long time ago, someone went home from a retreat like this, I think that was about 40 years ago <clears throat> because I've been hearing this, this story for a long time. <laughs> and um, they went home to their family and they tried to be uh, a Buddhist <laughs> and tried to talk about everything they learned and knew and all of that. And the teacher said this and that. And, um, and so they wrote a note to IMS, and I'm just paraphrasing, but it said something like, my family didn't like me when I was a Buddhist, (laughs) but they liked me when I was a Buddha. You know, someone who really embodies um, goodness and wisdom and the ability to know how and when to act and speak in a way that brings peace to one's 
world around and to bring and bring your in, bring more peace to oneself inside so this evening i'd like to speak about a quality that accompanies and empowers all the things all the, the wholesome states that we did our best to um, speak about in the Dharma talks and in answering the questions and in our individual and little group times with you. So this is a quality of equanimity. It's a really beautiful quality that mostly the world doesn't speak about so much. And, and so it's, it's kind of interesting to take it in and see how we can fit it into what we understand and know already about uh, the, the Dharma, about being a Buddha, about ourselves. So these, this quality of equanimity empowers and really makes uh, these other qualities strong, makes awareness really, really strong because of the balance that it has within it, because of the, a sense of spaciousness that can include everything within it. It's said that it totally um, empowers all of the Brahma-viharas, those beautiful qualities of mind, which sometimes we call the divine emotions, loving-kindness, compassion, and uh, sympathetic joy. The last one is equanimity, which empowers all the others. It makes them stronger. So many, if not all, of the wholesome qualities of the mind, they're called the beautiful qualities of the mind in the Buddhist um, Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology. There, I think there are 24 beautiful qualities of mind. There's all these numbers in the Buddhist teaching. So beautiful qualities of mind, which equanimity is one of and also empowers many, if not all, of the others. So it's manifested when there is a, the balance of wisdom and faith that I talked about in uh, my first talk on the five spiritual faculties. It's also what comes about when there is a balance between concentration and energy. And then amongst all of those, when there is a great balance, equanimity is developed. And it's said that because of that equanimity that's developed within the, that balance, Mindfulness becomes effortless. So we begin to feel that in our practice. Like sometimes people say, they try to lay down and, you know, take a rest and even maybe go to sleep, but they can't. They're still awake, you know. The mindfulness is still noticing what's happening. And sometimes not really understanding that there's a deep rest there in the mind because it's not reacting so sometimes we don't need sleep. There's times in our practices as yogis, um, we can get less and less sleep and it tends to be okay. So some of you who think, you know, well, can't four hours sleep, not enough, five hours, but when your mind's really rested, it's okay to get less sleep. The mind isn't reacting all the time, which causes a lot of tiredness. So this is a quality that is desperately needed in our lives. Not just loving kindness or compassion. Compassion meaning we take our loving kindness and we act in the world. That's a, um, one of the big differences between 
loving-kindness and compassion. So it gives us a lot of spaciousness, this equanimity, not just balance, and I'll describe that more later. Not just balance, but a lot of spaciousness to be able to actually contain what is presented to us in this mind. It's not easy, but when we can open to like, okay, this is part and parcel of life, and not be in denial or avoidance or ignorance about it, not be in pushing it away in aversion, but needing, of course, to to take a stand sometimes and do what we need to do to um, make change in the world and also to make change within ourselves. So we need to have a lot of spaciousness to be able to face everything that happens in the world within us and around us so that we can act appropriately. It's not just so that we stand there and say, okay, this is how it is. The next question is, and is there anything we can do about it? And then we do that with all the wholesomeness of our hearts and minds that we can muster up. So some years ago, I came across this writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman, co-founder of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco, a beautiful African-American man. And he wrote a book, Deep is a Hunger. And I've um, been reading that lately after I came across this quotation I'm going to give you of his. And um, a lot of just his um, practical sense of life, which is sometimes what we call the Dharma. Somebody asked one time, um, what is a Dharma anyway? Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? What is it? It's a way of life, and it's what's actually a yogi called advanced practical sense. And it does really make sense when you look at all the qualities that we present um, in the Dharma. So this is what the Reverend Howard Thurman wrote about uh, what he called seeing the world with quiet eyes, which is a way I try to um, support in, in the way I look at how life is, actually. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So with eyes that are, you know, the eyes are so small, but it can take in the whole world, can take in so much. And so how can we take everything in and have the subjective experience of equanimity? You know, those quiet eyes that can take things in and not react in unwholesome ways that make more trouble for our inner world and for our outer world. Equanimity is a calm, inner quiet that's spacious and balanced. So a lot of times equanimity connotes balance and we forget about the spaciousness. We forget about this, the, the calmness sometimes. 
and we forget about that it has a potentiality to really respond in the world, but respond in a way that brings more wisdom and compassion and has a long-term view. So this is an important subjective experience to reflect upon because these times that we live in now, the times and the society we live in, there's such a difficulty in navigating through it, especially recent times. We've seen there's been a lot more confusion, a lot more feeling of helplessness. I'm just naming what's true and not to you know, devote so much time to that that we get upset about it, but to really say what's true. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of injustice and inequality. And there's a lot of perplexity and frustration about how can there be so much ignorance in the world? How can one say, well, it wasn't my intention to hurt, but they don't take a look at what the impact was? Sure, we don't have the intention because sometimes we don't know, really know our intention. So part of intention is to really pay attention to the impact we're making and to learn from that, to really, you know, be willing to hear and to take in what the impact is so our hearts can open to the suffering uh, of so many people in the world. So we have uh, the, we live in the accessibility and speed of so much information about the news of the world that's continuously triggering reactions of, for me, I think the first thing is incredulity, like, I, I can't believe, you know, that how can people see it this way or act this way or, and not see the impact? I mean, anger comes up. For me too, there's a, it's a lot lessened through the years, but there's a lot of fear and terror and that automatic blame that goes out. There's strong emotions that naturally rise up in all of us. It's how things are. You know, it's natural for that to happen for those of us who um, we know we need more work on, our, on ourselves inwardly. I love how Manindra would always say when somebody would call him on something, and I would too sometimes. I'd call him on like, are you upset, Manindraji? You know, when I would see him kind of upset about something happening. And he would say, among other things, he would say, my path is not yet finished. And that made me feel like he was so real that I could trust him, that he knew what was happening um, in himself, so he, you know, he was so forgiving about what was happening, what he could see I was ignorant about, or I was in denial about, or things that I got triggered about that I let out. He was somebody I could say everything and anything to. So here we learn how to slow down and how to do less so that we can sit still for moments and rest the mind in, in awareness of what's going on. So a lot of what we've been trying to say is can we rest the mind in more and more awareness so that can really honestly mirror what's going on within us and all around us. And hopefully, you know, 
more and more equanimity is developing so that we're not reacting to the outer or to the inner world. And if we are reacting, then we can see that inner world happening and we can bring equanimity there to the inner reactivity. So more about that later. So I'd like to quote from Thomas Merton, an American Trappist monk who was in the Gethsemane Gethsemane, um, Monastery in Kentucky. He was a social activist and a poet and a student of comparative religion, and he really delved into the Buddhist teaching a lot. So what he says verifies a lot of what we may have learned to be true by actually being here and really looking at, having interest in what goes on in this inner world in relationship to the outer world. What's the attitude of the mind? Over and over what Uteshaniya asks. So this is a quote entitled, um, a writing by him inquired, uh, entitled, Courageous Rest. Courageous Rest. Some of us need to discover we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. These are times when, in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest doing nothing at all. Um, We have a saying in the Dharma, don't just do something, (laughs) do nothing, you know. Um, And this is what we do here, so that we can see more clearly. So Thomas Merton goes on to say, the very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform because of what is learned there. So he wrote something about activism that I want to read also. He titled uh, this, The Busyness and Violence of Modern Life. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common, of its innate violence to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to the many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of the activist destroys their own inner capacity for peace, the fruitfulness of one's own work, because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. So I'm just hearkening back to a time when I heard an interview um, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama after he spoke about the tragedies that were happening in his country and towards his people in Tibet. And he talked about it in very objective and real terms of how it was hurtful and harmful. And he, he didn't hold back much, but you could tell that he was talking with nonviolence you know, just seeing it with kind of, seeing the ignorance with compassion, which is really hard to do. And somebody came up to him at the end and said, I want to do everything I can, I will fight, I will do what I can. And it was so much reactivity to what was happening in, um, in Tibet and towards Tibetan people. 
and that His Holiness could tell about how much reactivity there was, that he said to the person who approached, he said, not now, not yet. Rest, I'm paraphrasing, rest your mind first. Get some clarity and then act from that place. So it's quite understandable that we feel agitated and violated and depressed and vulnerable and anxious in our times, in our lives, when people act without knowing or without caring that it's doing harm. And the Buddha talked about one reason that we feel this vulnerability in our lives is because we live in a realm that has um, these eight vicissitudes of existence, he calls them, the eight worldly conditions that we're constantly feeling bombarded by, feeling in the flux of. These are also known as the four pairs of vicissitudes that the Reverend Howard Thurman spoke about. So they are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. These are all the ups and downs that as we sit here in our practice, you know that you might be able to categorize them in your, especially, you know, pleasure and pain type of thing, gain and loss. We go through a lot of feeling of loss here. And, of course, we like to be praised, we don't like to be criticized, right? This is the fame and disrepute part. We like to uh, experience gain more and more, and we don't like to experience loss. This is natural. Loss hurts. You know, gain, we feel like, okay, it's bringing some kind of uh, pleasure in our lives. It's bringing some kind of, even some balance in our lives. But, of course, we hang on, and then when it goes away, there's despair. We like approval. We don't like to have disapproval or rejection. We want pleasure. We don't like pain. These are all natural experiences for us as human beings. There's nothing wrong. We're not wrong by feeling this. It's quite natural that we would feel all of these things. We didn't make a mistake because we felt gain or loss and didn't respond the right way. It's because we're still learning how to respond with wisdom to everything. So external conditions are constantly affecting us and these thoughts, emotions, mental states bodily experiences come up in relationship to external conditions. What we're learning here in this stillness, in this silence, in this um, support to kind of look inwardly is we're learning how to see what's going on inwardly so that when it comes up we recognize them more clearly so that in the world when there is an inward reaction that might cause harm and not benefit to another, then we refrain. But if there's something inwardly that's um, going to cause some benefit, it's a wholesome state of mind, then we do act and speak. And I just want to make clear with everything I say about that, that acting and speaking with strong energy is possible. It doesn't have to be anger. Um, There can be fierce compassion where we can be very fierce in the world 
and say no, or we can say stop, or we can do things that um, are with a very strong energy, but it doesn't have to be with so much anger. Of course, there may be some, and it lessens as we go on in our practice. So, um, I want to read what His Holiness the Dalai Lama said about these ups and downs, because even he experiences them. So just like when I heard from Anindra what he said, I felt really human when I heard, uh, when I read this about the Dalai Lama. He said, I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I'm up here on the throne teaching, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears a thought, how am I doing? (laughs) Are people going to react to this in a positive way? Will I be seen positively? But when I read that, I felt like, okay, it's not too bad, the things that come up in my mind. I don't have to have that many cringing moments. Um, and he goes on to say, are they going to praise me whenever this happens, uh, or they're going to criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, Now that I'm transmitting the Dharma here on this throne, I should not allow myself to be affected by these eight worldly um, vicissitudes. Uh, However, we do find that hopes, fears, and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. So to be aware of them. The eight worldly concerns can creep up on us even when we do something virtuous. They will try to find a way to slip in. So it's just, again, it's just the way it is. And that's one of the phrases in, um, in the Dharma, in equanimity practice. It's, it's the way it is right now. And as Mark says, it's like this, as some of us have said. It's just like this. And I like to add the word right now because it is impermanent. And just saying it's the way it is, it's like, oh, it's going to be this way forever. So I'd just like to add those two extra words right now. So with the outer conditions and the unseen habit patterns that their outer conditions are bringing up, we feel constantly bombarded somehow. We don't even know that our inner life is also bombarding us. So it's no wonder we feel like overwhelmed, and closed down and disconnected from our hearts. So how can we be connected with others when we're not really admitting what's going on within us or seeing or willing to see it very clearly? So the important questions to ask ourselves is how can we stay open and connected to the outer experiences when we feel safe, of course, yet have an abiding sense of inner balance and clarity so we can have the appropriate response. So maybe the appropriate response is to say or do something, but I also might add that the appropriate response could be to refrain in that moment. We don't always think about that we have that option, that 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 really is part of our uh, ability we're, we're, we have the power to also refrain. So reacting to a situation through unconscious habit patterns, 
is it causes problems, of course, you know, when we react with greed or hatred or not knowing. So it is helpful to step back for a while and, and see what's going on here and then to respond. So to respond to what's going on that will benefit in a way that will benefit. And then sometimes we're paralyzed because we're reacting. We have this inner experience towards the outer experience that also causes suffering for us. You know, we, we're confused or the anger comes up or blame comes up or judging comes up. And um, it's just habitual. It's not clear seeing in the moment. And then another moment of like, um, you know, flagellating ourselves because we were that way. I mean, half of our existence, or speaking for myself, as, as a guide, as a spiritual friend in the Dharma, is to be almost like, you know, hearing confessions of, you know, this is what happened, this is my inner experience, and I feel so bad about that. And, you know, I feel like I, I just wish I could say, go out and say ten Hail Marys and five <laughs> Our Fathers and you'll be absolved, but it doesn't work that way, does it? <laughs> yeah, it, do, it really doesn't. I mean, I was a Catholic, so I knew. Uh, I did all that stuff. Um, but actually it did help to calm the mind. It, there was a lot of help that I got in, in that area. So how can we stay aware yet compassionate towards ourselves when that happens? Not just to others, but towards ourselves. Because we often, we're the first ones that are um, harmed when we say something that harms others. It harms our own karmic stream and we hurt ourselves over and over again. So when we're practicing uh, during a retreat like this, we're becoming more aware of what those habit patterns are, and we're living in that fluctuation over and over again. And, you know, there, there is a quality of calm and, and courage that we need to have in order to face what's going on inside. It does allow us to know that when something, when that, similar thing happens outside of us, then we know, um, oh, this is how it feels. You know, they're really suffering. So that can be part and parcel of how we face the outer world. I love this um, poem by a woman of the um, Japanese 9th century. This person said, her name was Izumi Shikibu, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary and mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So that's what we do in this silent, quiet stillness and slowness here. It's, it's not easy, you know, to see what goes on inside. Um, it's like, like somebody said... Um, seeing what goes on inside is like uh, one humiliation after another. (laughs) So we really need to learn how to be compassionate with ourselves. So this quality of equanimity helps us to navigate that inner terrain 
as well as the outer terrain of relationships in the world, um, you know, with individuals and with uh, communities and society as a whole and the world. It implies balance, but the subjective experience can also be really spacious. Really, it can come into a big space. And sometimes when I have a problem of taking something in, I just kind of envision in the moment the sky, like it can hold everything. And if you throw anything up into it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stick. It just kind of, you can throw a can of paint up of all different colors mixed up and it doesn't stick. It just, you know, it's space. And so how can that be in the space of the mind and heart? Um, It's not about balancing on a razor's edge where you feel like, oh, I've got to be really careful because if I lean this way, I'm going to be out of balance or the other way out of balance. But it's really about a wide stance in life, like a mountain. Sometimes in the um, MBSR, um, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, they probably a lot of you, some of you are teaching it actually, a lot of you know of that, the, um, the emblem or the symbol for equanimity is that as a mountain. And we see, like I live on a mountain where you see when thunder hits it, you know, it, it, it just remains. When there's lightning and when there's heavy rain and when there's sunshine, it just has a kind of stability. So this is a stability that equanimity can bring to us. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, as human beings, we don't do anything about it. It just means momentarily there's some great stability in the mind and the heart. So it doesn't have to automatically react in a way that causes more harm. So to really survive and thrive as a human being, we need to have that space big enough that can contain everything. So this from Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda. He said, The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. You know, the wonder, the potential of our, our minds and hearts to contain all of what there is and to also contain in our hearts the wisdom to know how to respond, the wisdom to know and to discern what is the impact on others. And can I learn from that? Can I really take that in? And to kind of um, a, a kind of shift my way of seeing what my intention really is. So... In this space, there can be a lot of clarity because we're not um, sort of just letting the habit patterns take over, which is what we do when we're really not aware or we're not willing to be aware or we don't care to be aware or we don't take the courage to be aware of our inner terrain. Or when it's too hard, we just say, well, what, what is this all about, you know? and not really understand, take the the time to understand what are we really doing here that's so valuable? 
and that's so necessary in life. So it's very clear that to when the Buddha said to see and know things as they are is to really know with clarity um, the ca- that, that they're suffering, that this is a fact of life. Dukkha, sacha, it doesn't mean, you know, there's, um, there's suffering just like that. You know, suffering is what life is all about. Life is suffering. It means there is the fact of suffering. This is the really the translation of those two words of the first noble truth, dukkha satcha. There is the fact of suffering and to open to that in, in ourselves and in the world. And what we're also learning is there is a cause and the cause is clinging the opposite side of that is aversion or hatred. And there are many iterations and intensities of uh, attachment and aversion. But we use different words, those are just two of them. And there, there is ignorance too. And that's what feeds both of those. So the coin of, of that suffering is on one side there's attachment, on the other side, there's aversion and all the intense iterations of that. And the whole thing is wrapping around that. The coin itself is ignorance and delusion. So, from the truth of seeing how it is, arises compassionate understanding. Arises the wisest way we can exercise our agency in the world. We have agency. It comes from our intention. But what is our intention? That's what we're coming to know. Is our intention coming from greed, hatred, and delusion? Or is it coming from a sense of generosity and love and wisdom? So we're learning how to act with agency that's powerful and that causes a lot of long-term change in the world. So when we say this is how it is right now, right now, we're opening to the truth of how it is and, and not to how we think it should be, but first to how it is. There is the truth of suffering and this is what is being faced. It is caused by greed, hatred and delusion, to name all of them. But um, there is an end to suffering too. And we are on the path to the end of suffering because we're understanding these things more. So a lot of times what we might say in an equanimity practice is opening to the truth. May my heart open to the truth. This is how it is right now. It's also impermanent and impersonal. But... It's also personal in the sense that there is a sense of um, self in the world. And that sense of self has the power of agency that can act in the world. But we're looking at how are we acting and speaking in the world? And how can that be with the power of a pure mind, a clear mind? So we're taking that sense of agency even further into our lives. It said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything yet possess nothing. 
It's not holding on to anything, to our sense of what we think it should be, how we think, okay, it should be perfect. We live in an imperfect world. It has been that way from time immemorial. And we must continue to do things to make, uh, to create more benefit for all beings. And we can't stop doing that. It's our right as human beings and it comes up naturally for us. But we have to look to how we're doing that. With what kind of mind and heart are we acting in the world? The Buddha said, for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are and to know the Dhamma. And then what he described in the Eightfold Noble Path is how can we act in the world with uh, wise speech, with right, right, wise intention, right, wise thought, right, wise action, wise livelihood. So I know sometimes um, a lot of words and descriptions don't really hit the mark or they can't really unless they're attuning to our own experience. And so I just want to um, relay an experience that I've given given permission to tell you about. And this is from a dear friend of mine, a very personal example, where I witnessed a strong and steady balance. She's a yogi friend of mine, and who in the end said that through very difficult times, she... Uh, said that the practice of equanimity really helped her. So uh, um, quite a few years ago, one of uh, my friend's grown-up sons disappeared, and he was in his early 20s. And this family um, lived at that time in the place I live, in Hawaii. So the family, of course, did the best they could, took every measure to find out what happened, where is he, is he safe, Um, it went to extensive um, action and and ways that they could do that. And they weren't able to discover a thing about what was happening. Uh, His friends seemed to close down and not want to say anything. So this friend of mine who is a mother was very, of course, troubled and in despair. So not knowing what had happened and what else to do, she just thought to lean into herself and do the the equanimity practice that she had known to do, which is equanimity is said to um, be filled with loving kindness. So it's it's not like you're saying this is how it is right now, but you're saying it with great loving kindness, tenderness, and compassion. So she kept an inner vigil of patience and steadiness and uh, love, a candle of deep love in her heart, for, of course, for her son. But also she used the phrase, and it was like facing the truth that really helped her. Um, it was a great loss and mystery to her. She had a lot of sorrow and pain, but she used this phrase to help her just face what was going on. All beings have their own journey. And that was not in relationship to just her son, but that was in relationship to her own journey, 
her own inner journey in relationship to her son and in relationship to herself. So um, eventually uh, they travel, she and her husband travel to Europe to be with their daughter. And that daughter in Europe was about to give birth to their first grandchild. So they were really looking forward to some joy in their lives and some fulfillment that way. So just before they left, what happened was that the son that disappeared reappeared. So there was this um, sorrow, and then there was joy. And it was incredible how my friend could just realize that her heart was able to hold both. Maybe not at the same time, but it was big enough to hold both. So after the experience of loss and sorrow, they regained their son, and there was joy and um, a kind of like relief, of course. So they continued to travel, and they arrived at the uh, daughter's place in Europe, and the daughter gave birth to a beautiful child, and so there was joy and gain for the family. You know, So there was that sense of loss and gain again. But while they were there, not long afterwards, they got news of her other son, a son who, not the one who had disappeared, but another one that was younger. And he tragically died. And this was all, all over a, spirit, a period of a few months. He was only 21 years old. So there was that ultimate, you know, uh, vicissitude of birth of a young child and death. Ultimate sorrow, you know, when a child dies, of course. So we see it around us every day, but still it's indescribably painful when it happens to those of us close to us and um, to ourselves, of course. So after we met afterwards when they had a... um, uh, service for the son who had died, and she said that she owed her steadiness to the Dharma. It really saved her sanity. And so I want to quote her. She said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing my son alongside the love and joy of who he was. Uh, Again, you know, there's the sorrow and the joy. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. So all through this time, uh, she stayed connected and... um, She understood with a lot of grace and was a great uh, um, I just saw that I wish I could be like her when those things happened to me. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe an inner sense of equanimity where the heart and mind are infinitely spacious, and that's what my friend described. And maybe sometimes you can hearken back into your life and at times 
remember when you were able to do that. Or maybe you haven't been able to do that, but you know you have the capacity to do that somehow. It has the potential to contain everything with a lot of love. Its uh, equanimity is defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. So what are the events that are beyond our control? They're just realistically the events that have already happened, right? We have incredible influence over what may happen by our words and our our thoughts and our deeds. But what has already happened, it's out of our control, basically. So I'm just using that as one example. There, There are a lot of things that are out of our control. Like, I did not have control over what happened to my four children. I can say that with complete equanimity and (laughs) be realistic about it. There were many times when I saw that if you keep going down that path, there's going to be a waterfall pretty soon and it's really dangerous. I'm speaking metaphorically. And you're going to go down that waterfall and either completely drown or really hurt yourself. I know that because I've been down that path. So if you do that, it's going to hurt. Did I have any control? No. You know, there, was, there were those who, who did that. And of course they learned from that. And they, you know, they were hesitant to say, but many years later they came back and said, you were right, Mom, <laughs> you know. It really hurt when that happened, but I didn't listen, but I learned a lesson. Okay, you know, that's good too. There were times, being a mother, when I thought, well, I can't do it anymore. You know, you're gonna, the universe is going to have to teach you the lessons. So, okay, so be it. But, you know, trembling in the background. So we do have, we do have some influence but we don't have complete control. Um, We can come from an internal place to respond from wisdom if we know the internal place that's happening. We can respond with compassion, equanimity, a lot of wholesome qualities. And we can say, we can do and say things with fierce compassion. And, um, And that can be totally okay. You know what about Manjushri with a sword of wisdom who just went right for it? He cut through the delusion. This is in the Tibetan tradition and I love that about it. And what about um, Tara, green Tara in the Tibetan tradition whose you know, right, right leg is ready. You know, she's not just sitting there quietly. Her right leg is just moving to get ready to step into action. So this is what we have the potential to do, and we're not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. We still have influence over events in terms of our responsiveness. So one of the qualities of compassion that is in addition to loving-kindness, by the way, Uh, Compassion is loving-kindness that turns towards uh, suffering. 
And not only does it turn towards suffering, but it acts to do something in relationship to that suffering. So that's one of the qualities of compassion that really needs to be highlighted. So are we, where are we coming from inwardly? That's the question. So as I engage in all the facets of my life, I ask myself, am I seeing the world through quiet eyes or is there reactivity there? So we really want to know that. So what's the terrain of equanimity? You know, the middle path, you know, on the, we're going down the path in the middle path we could call equanimity. It's a place where we can see what's going on all over, all sides. We can see all sides. It's a, the middle path is where we can see uh, to the left, to the right, wherever, up and down, if we're in a place where we can see that. And we're also able to see what the far enemy, what we call the far enemy is, or the direct opposite, is called uh, reactivity. And reactivity is the direct opposite, which comes in two parts. One part is attachment, like attachment to what we want or how we think it should be, or just clinging to something, our opinion, a person, a thing. Um, And the other part is aversion, hatred, rage, you know, all those iterations in different intensities. And how we react to the world kind of automatically, it's kind of like our um, reflexive activity of the mind default setting sometimes because we don't really see it so clearly. So in our training we're learning how to recognize that um, more and more. So if it comes up we can wait and wait till things calm down and then act. This is a a famous story I get a lot of it's famous because I get a lot of mileage out of it and I keep telling and, and people say Oh, I heard that before, so pardon me if you heard it already, but you may see something different about it. Um, this was a time when I was taking care of Manindraji, um, my first Dharma teacher, and he was going through some surgery and then recovery. And I wanted everything to be just right for him, so I was really attached, right, to having everything perfect. And so I talked to the family ahead of time and I said, Look, he does a lot for the world, so let's really help him. And can we keep the arguments down a little bit when he's around and keep it a little calm, etc.? So, what happened when um, he was in the house is that um, I don't have control, right? So, an argument arose <laughs> um, uh, with the daughter who was kind of going into. A difficult phase of her life. She was about 13, 12 or 13. And then um, her father, uh, who was like, also it's, it was difficult for us, you know, to go through that. And so she started acting out, had a lot of emotional pain, and I could hear in the other room, she started shouting at her father at the top of her lungs, no, I won't do that. And he he was shouting back at her too, you know, Therese, you got to listen to me. No, I'm not going to listen, you know, something like that. So Menindra and I were sitting at the table, 
And I wanted like everything to be perfect and it was like I was cringing in my seat. I wanted to run away. I wanted to run to them and say, would you please stop? Or I really wanted to say something else that I wouldn't mention in this hall. <laughs> but um, <laughs> like shut up. So, <laughs> so what I did though was, you know, I was just kind of paralyzed and Manindra was sitting on that side and then I was sitting here and he reached over with his right arm hand and he put it on my left arm and he said to me, surrender to the law. And it wasn't like the police were around. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) surrender, when he said the law, it meant how things are. This is how things are, you know, like, can you please face this? You've got the child and the mother and the father shouting, you've got, you know, and this is what's happening inwardly. Face it. Just face the truth of how things are. And so there was a lot of reactivity inside of me. I was really embarrassed. She went to the room, slammed the door. Her father said, open the door. No. Open the door. No. Open the door or I will kick this door down. Go ahead. So that's what happened. Okay, that's a real life of a Dharma teacher. (laughs) I live in the real world. I'm not floating on a cloud. So what I understood from Manindra's hand on me was that this... Be clear about the experience. It's not what you want. It's what's happening now. See it with wisdom and respond. You know, so, okay, when things got calmer, I could go to one and the other and say something in a calmer, more wise state. So Manindra didn't comment. You know, the one thing about him is he's just so open to how things are and realized for himself inside how things are that, he understood, you know, he was very accepting of it. So um, what is the other part, the other extreme that I really want to talk about is uh, passivity and um, uh, a place where you don't think you, you can do anything at all, like helplessness. And that is the other extreme, the other side of the coin, and if we can see it coming before, you know, beforehand, like the reactivity or the passivity that's there, like we can't act or we feel frozen, then when we can see that, maybe we can kind of let loose some active re- re- response to the situation. But we, if we can see the storm brewing or, you know, not anything happening, then we're aware of what's going on inside. The, the near enemy is called passivity because it's, it seems like equanimity, but it's what is called stupid equanimity. <laughs> you know, it's not doing anything at all. So um, there was a situation where um, there was a lot of reactivity going on because of something, but I needed to look at that reactivity inside myself before I made uh, the situation worse. So I was having a conversation with someone, the neighbor. It got very heated and really emotional, and um, 
the voices starting to go up. And we were both making a case out of our boundary line between us, you know, our our um, land boundary line. And her case that she didn't want us to mow on our side because um, she just liked it that way, you know, with all the grass and trees and bushes. But we were trying to make a way for fire engines to come in case there was a fire on the land. So she was strongly in, involved in what she wanted, and so was I. So I, I realized um, it, it got too heated, and I realized in myself I'd better stay calm now, and I'd better not say anything because I'm liable to make the situation worse. So I said, I think I'd better be quiet now because I'm not coming from a very balanced place inside. And so she said, you're right. You're not coming from a very balanced place inside. So it's like, oh, I should have thought of another way to phrase that. But then I I thought, I better not say anything more because it's going to cause more problems. So I didn't. I put the so-called Dharma duct tape on my mouth and I just refrained and you know it is you get humiliated sometimes but it's for a good cause you know <laughs> i'm humiliated by my own response to it basically so in that way you have a second chance a second chance because maybe the first thing was like it didn't go so well there was reactivity then you see the reactivity inside yourself and so i brought equanimity there too this is the way it is for me right now, inside. And that's more important in a way than what's going on outside because we have to know that in order how to act. So apathy, also knowing when we need to act, knowing that we do have a sense of agency. I really wanted to point that out because it was a really important point um, that I've been wanting to put words to for a long, long time. So I'm so glad that it was brought into our uh, community here. So one definition of agency is one's independent capability or ability to act on one's will. And we do have that. But how we're acting is another question, where we're acting from. So one of the properties that give rise to agency, this is in a kind of description that comes from social defi- sociology and definitions in that realm, is that uh, it gives rise to intentionality. And human beings act with intention for the goals that we're after, the goal for peace in the world, the goal for some benefit, good goals. But human beings use, and human beings use their intelligence to guide their actions and predict the consequences of their actions. So what we're learning in the Dharma, which is so important, is we're encouraging, encouraging ourselves to know what's going on in here so that we can really know how to predict what the result will be of our actions and our speech. So if we act with wholesome states of mind, sometimes they have to be strong, then we're liable to get wholesome results, good results, and vice versa as well. So we have a powerful sense of agency. And so it's so uh, important to connect with what's going on inside. 
So this from Goethe. Um, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I'm the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. So I really take that to heart. You know, it's very powerful that we're, what we're learning here is how are we acting and speaking and what kind of karma is it causing for our own karmic stream and for others. So um, I'd like to end with a vision I have that re- remains with my heart about the last, um, one of the last times I was with Manindraji. Uh, and um, it's this vision of, of spaciousness, you know, because we hear equanimity and automatically is balanced. But what about spaciousness? In this day and time that we're living in, it's really important to just have a, a wide heart and mind to be able to contain what's going on to protect ourselves when it's not safe. And I really have to make that clear. And not to have to open to everything. But when we can, to open to it. So this is when I was um, visiting Manindraji in, in India. And it was our last day there. And I was on my way back to um, the U.S. We were in Varanasi. And we were going to take a boat down um, the Ganges River. And uh, it's early morning. How many of you have been there, down the Ganges River? Yes, so you you can share this with me. And so um, one of the things only a Dharma teacher would want of their student is to be able to see dead bodies. And so that was one reason he wanted us to sail down the Ganges River because there were all these burning nets on the, on the side of the river as we went down. They were on the right side. And he was hoping that we might see a dead body, but we never did. Uh, but this is how a Dharma teacher wants um, you know, a person, a yogi, to open to everything in the world. So we're going down uh, the Ganges. It was before dawn. And it was a clear, of course, warm morning. And on one side, the far horizon, on the opposite side of the burning ghats, there was a sun rising, you know, this beautiful orange ball of light, just very, very bright light, marking a new day, the birth of a new day. And on the other side, there were these, sometimes it got close enough to see the, you know, from a little far away, but to see the images of the bodies that were in the fire. And then um, to see death. So here's birth on one side, death on the other side. And then going down the river, 
sitting next to Manindraji, and I was with friends also. The just the the gladness of being with spiritual friendship, having spiritual friendship, and having you know my beloved teacher there, and so that there was a joy for me inside, and of course a gratitude and appreciation. And it's I could see this is a gain for me, you know, to have the Buddha said. It's really 100% of the holy life is spiritual friendship. So I really felt that. So on the other side, there was, of course, sadness and loss and despair to see the families nearby, you know, crying and wailing sometimes. Sorrow, joy and sorrow. And a lot of mudita, happiness, for the, the happiness of my friends who are with me who also you know, see that the joy of being with a spiritual teacher and having these experiences and on the other side, the sorrow too, seeing the sorrow of of this loss. There's a lot of beauty in in India. It's um, just to see the pureness of life, you know, just really how it is and connected to so much of life that you can see so much of the times past and have appreciation from that because living in, in a, being in a third world country and being in a lot of the countryside. And then also the rawness of it all, you know, the beauty and the rawness of it all. So being able to really take in all so that the mind and heart are so big that it can happen like that. It breaks your heart and it opens your heart at the same time. So this is what um, our life is, you know, this ability, this potentiality to have this kind of big-heartedness, big-mindedness where we can open to how things can break our hearts and how things can open our hearts as well, cause more wisdom to arise. So I just want to end with this. Um, it's called a gift from um, William Stafford, and it's from the book "The Way It Is," his book of poems. I, and I say this um, only parts of it because it's a long poem, and because we've been given the gift of, of being here together. Time wants to show you a different country. It's the one that your life conceals. It's a balance, the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been and how people and weather treated you. It's a country where you already are. Time offers this gift in its millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every morning, here, take it, it's yours. So let's sit for a moment.
So thank you for your kind attention. We have 20 minutes um, or a little less for walking or bathroom. So please join us for the last evening chant that we'll have, sharing the blessings of our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.